Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 496, a best of replay. One of my favorite episodes from 2011 with uh, the late Christine Keys, uh, who shares her amazing story about surviving uh, the Holocaust as a child in the Warsaw Ghetto and uh, a lot of it about the relationship with with her mom and it's just uh, an episode uh, that that I think is really special. Uh, Our sponsor today as always is BetterHelp.com. They provide online counseling. They're a great service. They're convenient. They're affordable and more importantly they have tons of really qualified therapists uh, ready to uh, ready to help you. Um, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Please include this slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And um, just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they think is a good match for you, they will pair you up. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And uh, you need to be over 18. If you're between 13 and 17, they'll direct you to teencounseling.com. And uh, you can make arrangements to get consent from your parents, and then the relationship between the teen and the counselor is is uh, private, and it meets all legal requirements in all 50 states. All right, without any further ado, this is the uh, episode with uh, Christine Keys. Welcome to episode 51 uh, with my guest, Christine Keys. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, and I'm going to cut uh, all the 
intros and messages and stuff like that short for this episode because uh, this interview is a little on the uh, uh, the long side. Um, there's just so much good stuff that I could not cut out of it. Um, I, I had to leave it at this length that it is. Um, but uh, yes, so uh, let's kick it off with a... oh. I know what I wanted to tell you. Uh, there's a We have a newsletter now that you can sign up for. And if you go to the website, please sign up for that. Uh, the website is mentalpod.com. And um, I want to kick it off with a, uh, a quote that uh, Einstein said, which uh, I really liked. He says that I must be willing to give up what I am in order to become what I will be. Everybody yeah. I know is bizarrely, beautifully fucked up in some weird way. I couldn't stand you in the audition. I couldn't stand yeah. you. Yes, yeah. awful. Yeah. I was drunk. And I learned that I could solve my problems. And said. Through violence, since I couldn't communicate. Lonely? Yes. I'm afraid that my genitalia is ugly. That's hurtful. And what was your role in the robbery? I mean, you never knew what you were going home to. I had a jar that had teeth in it. I was a wreck. Other people's teeth? Yeah. I'm here with uh, Christine Keys, who uh, I met through her son. Actually, I just met you five right. five minutes ago. She just walked in the door with uh, with her son Jeff Rosenthal, who uh, who I've known for for twenty years. And uh, Jeff and I were having dinner the other night, and um, I can't remember how the subject came up, but we were talking about the movie Life Is Beautiful, and you had mentioned that um, that people. Some people protested at the way the Holocaust was presented in that movie. And then you mentioned what your mom had said. And I thought, wow, that would be, she, that would be a, a great guest. That sounds like somebody who's very thoughtful and has lived through some um, trials and tribulations and uh, seems to have a, a good uh, attitude and to be very thoughtful. Yeah, I actually wrote a letter to the New Yorker objecting to their review of the you did. movie which they printed. Okay. What I can't remember when that was. Um I mean just briefly we'll get we'll, we'll get back into uh, your your childhood later but just before before you give your opinion of life is beautiful you were raised in Warsaw uh during during World War 2 and and right. you're Jewish. Right. Um and so what was the <clears throat> what did, was the letter Well, that, you know, I really don't remember except I think um, just the, the reviewers sort of question the some of the precepts of the movie that people could live a life or try to live within mm -hmm. the camp, a life that was sort of normal. And Do you remember the letter at all, Jeff? I do. It was actually that um, you had pointed out that because there were over 6 million people affected by the war, that there were as many different versions of the story. And that to think that there was only one way to tell the story was very naive, and that that actually, and then actually, I think you had also mentioned how there were elements of your childhood that were felt like a fairy tale, or a you know were you were kept safe by the notion that what was going on was not necessarily always uh, exactly as the world saw it later. But anyway, the the basic premise being that you know. It was okay to show a different view of the war than just having one rigid concept of it. Yeah, I think I felt that my to move that a little bit my experience was somewhat different because 
I was of a particular age where I really didn't know anything different. Mm -hmm. So there was a normality to it, which mm. wasn't there for other people or for the adults. What, what year were you born? 33. So you were six when I the was six when the war started, and I was uh, seven and eight in the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh -huh. So, and it just seemed it was, you know, that was the life that we had, and there were certain priorities such as survival. Right. And, uh, and aside from that, um, the result being that I have a very uh, exact and detailed memory of everything that went on, whereas my mother, who was with me at the end of the war, didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And she kind of blocked it out. Right. A lot of my survival had to do with my mother, who was very determined that we should survive. And she not only saved me, but she also saved her younger brother, whom she had promised her parents she would take care of. Yeah. So that was quite a burden because uh, we were Jewish and he was a male who was circumcised. And in Poland, only Jews are circumcised. It's very easy so that's for, a giveaway. to identify. So basically, if you were a Jewish male, you had to pretty much stay hidden because anybody could stop you and decide that, you know, they wanted to see what you looked like, and then you were stuck. So it was my, I always had a feeling that my mother's own survival really was determined by the fact that she had to keep me and her brother alive. And, and, and how old would your mom have been at this, at this point? Uh, about uh, 29, 30. Okay. When the war started, I was at my grandparents because that's where I spent summers mm -hmm. and the war started in the September and I was still with my grandparents and so I was not in Warsaw when it was attacked and bombed and uh, but my grandparents decided that uh, well... Were these your mom's parents or your Yes, dad's? my mother's parents yeah. and they, uh, there was obviously a lot of talk about the war all around me, which, you know, was, I must have just gotten the tone off and the, and the sense of urgencies because people are always, you know, turning on the radio and listening to the radio and shushing everybody so they could hear the, the news. And I remember having my first memory, actually, funny of the war, is a dream I had at my grandparents' house that there were people lined up on two sides of the street. You know, the Germans were on one side of the street fighting, and the Poles were on the other side of the street fighting, and that they were, like, shooting at each other from across the street. And that was kind of my image of what a war was. Uh -huh. So I remember having that dream. And then my grandparents, as did everybody in the surroundings, we were about... They were in a town that was like uh, something like 54 miles, 80 miles north of Warsaw. Everybody decided the thing to do was to pack up and go to Warsaw to be safe. What? Uh, that the notion, I guess, being, and I don't really fully understand it, but the notion, I guess, was that the city would be the most defended. Ah, uh, yeah, I guess that makes possibly. sense. Possibly. <clears throat> so everybody uh, packed up, and my grandparents had a, they had a business, and they had a wagon that they used for distributing the products. My grandfather had a soap factory, and they had a, a wagon with horses, 
and packed up as much as I could, as they could, and me, and loaded us on the, on the wagon. And I think it was at night because I remember waking up. I knew they were, they were packing, but I had fallen asleep. They must have put me on the wagon while I was asleep. I remember waking up in the middle of the night uh, because the wagon had stopped, and there was um, there were like soldiers around us. There were Polish soldiers, but they had gas masks on. So I just woke up, and there were these creatures leaning over the. Uh, oh my God! Wagon with these strange faces, and uh, I don't know whether at the time I knew there were gas masks, but I remember that was kind of like a dream. These kind of weird creatures wow. leaning over, and these were soldiers with gas masks, turning everybody back, saying, "You know, this is ridiculous, and you the roads are being here. bombed, and the city's being bombed, and you do not want to go to war, so you want to turn around and go back." So that was. Uh, so did you, your family turn around and go back to the country? Went back, and uh, but we had no news of my mother, who was in Warsaw. So there were several, and I really don't know how much time had passed, when my mother arrived on some kind of, uh, you know, a lot of people were like, basically hitchhiking, getting transportations from whatever was available. So she arrived on another... So she got out of Warsaw temporarily. Uh, wagon or something. And uh, she was she had a few belongings with her. And it turned out that the house we lived in had been bombed and burnt down. And uh, by that time, I guess the war was, as far as Poland was, Poland had already capitulated. Mm -hmm. By the time she got there, it must have been a, probably at least a week or more. And she was weeping and my grandparents thought that she had heard some bad news about her husband who was my stepfather whom she married a year before the war and uh was drafted into the army or was you know a reservist in the army and was gone with the army and she said no she had to give her dog up and she was crying about Aww. her dog because we had this german shepherd and apparently the house was bombed and it burned down, and uh, she lost the dog in the commotion of that. And uh, some few days later, somebody told her that they saw her dog lying on the ruins of the house. It oh. was an apartment building, but he was on the ruins of the apartment building, and he won't. And he looked starved, and he won't go with anybody. So oh. she went and got the dog. The dog had been. Um, hurt i think he had a, like it looked like he was nicked by a bullet in his leg and it was a kind of a a wild german shepherd and uh, and what happened after that is she thought that he might have must have been shot by a german soldier because every time he saw somebody in a german uniform he would go crazy and try to attack them oh my so God. that was not a good dog to have with you yeah. while this was going on she didn't know what to do because she was very attached although to the i dog. do love the idea of a german shepherd attacking germans <laughs> and they did have dogs a lot of them had dogs mm -hmm. so uh he said he would just, you know, he would see somebody in a german uniform he just would go crazy so she finally was able to get him out of the city, and somewhere along the road, she stopped at a farmer's house, and uh, 
and asked them if they could possibly take the dog. They said, you know, he's a really good guard dog. You can use him as a guard dog. And they agreed to take him. And so she arrived all weepy because she had just given the dog up. But at least she knew it was safe, which is, which is nice. Yeah, I guess. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. This episode is sponsored by Prolon. Extended fasting of at least two to three days has unique benefits such as cellular rejuvenation, an idea that was awarded the 2016 Nobel Prize in Medicine. And Prolon is based on that. It's a plant-based nutrition program that nourishes the body while making cells believe that they're fasting. Uh, my package just arrived. It's uh, Each day has its own little container with very clear instructions on how you're going to do it. And I'm very interested to, to see how, uh, how it's going to go. Prolon isn't a diet. Prolon is science. Right now, Prolon is offering Metal Illness Happy Hour listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash podcast. That's P-R-O-L-O-N life.com slash podcast for this special offer. That's prolonlife.com slash podcast. So that's that's how it all started. Mm. Then she took me back to Warsaw, and I really don't remember how we went there. So what was the idea in going back to Warsaw? Was it because Poland had capitulated? It was deemed, okay, well, now the the, the war part is over. It's just an occupation, and that's going right. to be safe enough. Yeah, that's part of it. But there was another part, which is that when Germany came into Poland, they... Uh, Basically, the idea was that they would annex Poland to Germany, Mm -hmm. except that they cut out a space around Warsaw, and they call it a self-governing part. Mm. And so some of the restrictions and uh, just the way people were treated, there was supposed to be uh, a self-governing area that still had the Polish authority over it. Mm-hmm. Whereas everything else, including where my grandparents were, was now being annexed into Germany. Right. And the treatment of Jews was very different right away. Germany actually respected this self-governing area? 
Well, it had a, it, it had different. It had Polish police that was kind of in I charge, see. and see. it was it was considered to be. It had some names in in German, but it was considered to be semi self governing. Okay, and uh, the rules were different. So that no, the Poland actually shortly before the war, which is something that that helped us a lot. Uh, my mother, that is, had a new constitution which uh, took away any indications of uh, your religion from your documents. Mm-hmm. So people know, had a passport that did not say you were Jewish. Um, and that was a big advancement, and I think that happened in 19, maybe 33 or something like that, 32. And was was that kind of people could hear the drums of war and knowing that this was... I don't think so. I no? think it was just a kind of a trend towards democracy that was going on because of the of the president of the new president that they had and such. that probably saved a lot of people uh yes except well it was very complicated it helped my mother because her name was a very polish sounding name mm-hmm. so with that passport and her polish sounding name she uh she actually used it at one point. The 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 thing being that what the German the first thing that Germans did when they came in, they asked everybody to register and all the Jews to register and most of the people registered. Mm-hmm. So they had lists of everybody. Oh, I see. Yeah. But in the in uh Warsaw the Jews eventually had to wear armbands with uh White armbands with the blue star of David on them. Right, and you went over the age of twelve. Have have when you see the documentary, that's yeah. kind of the image. To, yeah, that, that but most... in the part where my grandparents were, and in the in the Poland that was incorporated into Germany, they wore yellow stars on their backs, mm. and they had to walk off the sidewalk. So it was quite a more horrific thing. And this was out in the in the country where you're. Where my grandparents Where your grandparents were. were. Uh, that's funny because I, I, I wouldn't... Well, funny is not the right word. Um, interesting because I... I you th- when you think of the Nazi occupation of Warsaw and, and Poland in general, you think of Warsaw as being the abs- absolute worst place to be in, in Poland. But it was the countryside. Yeah, it act Well... You know, it's a mixed bag because in the country, a lot of people ended up joining the partisans in the woods. The Jews did. Uh, there were some other avenues of escape. Um, but in a lot of these places where there was n- not a ghetto, where they weren't, you know, putting people into an enclosed part of the city, they were just, they were just killed. So... Uh, it kind of depends, uh, depend, and, depend, and depended, you know, who your neighbors were yeah. and who people liked you or didn't like you and whether they yeah. wanted to turn you in. And then you so, throw in the whole thing about Russia, uh, you know, for for people that aren't, aren't familiar with uh, the details of, of World War II, you know, uh, 
Russia was uh, originally, when, when Germany first invaded, they divvied up Poland with Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany was pretending to be Russia's friend. And right. Poland being wedged between Germany and Russia. And actually, the, one of the things I saw in this documentary was the the largest road between Berlin and Moscow ran right through through uh, Warsaw. So it was strategically uh, of huge importance and literally couldn't be probably a worse place strategically to be mm-hmm. on earth uh, in World War II than, than <clears throat> to be in Warsaw because you're literally in the jaws of these two ruthless right. empires. Except that a lot of people at that point, a lot of people who had the means, of, which is like a lot of people who were in various diplomatic corps and had access to to cars and limousines and transportation, a lot of these people immediately went east into Russia. And these people survived. I mean, we had a lot of friends who, you know, came back after the war from the Soviet Union, and they may have had a hard time or whatever, but they survived. One of them was my real father, yes. But my father went... And he got stuck somewhere in between, like you say. And when the Russians kept changing sides and then they attacked again, he would get arrested by the Germans, put in jail. Then the Russians would come in. They'd let everybody out of jail. And then the Germans would come back in. And somehow in some of those exchanges, I assumed under the Germans, he was, he did die, he was killed. My uncle, my mother's younger brother, who was the one she was charged by her parents to protect mm. and did, also went with his, uh, uh, what was it, his cousins and some other family members who did survive, went to Russia, and they had a terrible crossing, and they got frostbite on their feet, and he got very upset that because he was very attached to the family, that he left my mother and that he was going, you know, saving himself by going to Russia. And he came back to Warsaw. And uh, all I remember when he came back and that he had frostbite on his feet, my mother was taking care of him, and she said, tomorrow I'm packing you up and you're going right back. And he cried and said he wasn't going to leave, he was not going to leave, he couldn't go, and she said, all right, you can stay. And where were the... And he must have been about 21 or something Uh like that. Where were their parents that, that, that they had charged her with? Well, they were in this little town that was incorporated into the Germany, where I was when the war started. I see, because they weren't in, in Warsaw proper. They, no, they were like, it was 80 miles north of Warsaw, I gotcha. and it became part of the Reich. And uh, my mother wanted them to come to Warsaw. It's always, things are so mixed up, because I think if yeah. they did, we might not have survived. But my mother did everything she could to, to make them come. And my grandfather owned a soap factory, which was requisitioned by the Germans, but they put him in charge of it. So his idea was that he was necessary. They couldn't run this factory without him. And because of that, he felt assured of his survival. And, and did he survive? No. No, they were both, both my grandparents, as far as I know, were taken and, you know, gassed or whatever. Uh, and uh, 
what 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 is that like not knowing what became of somebody and what what's that like i do when i was a child and when i was in the ghetto and basically all my friends were gone by the time i was 80 years old and we got out of the ghetto all the friends i had were were gone and i had an when you, when you were how old eight yeah mm-hmm. And my image of that was it was like dropping off the edge of the world into some black hole. That was the the image that I had all through my childhood of what happened to everybody and what would happen to me if I didn't, you know, step back from whatever these these holes were, which which happened a couple of times. So um there was like a, a, a just a blackness, and that was it. But I think, you know, you asked me before, I said to you before that I'm a cheerful person, and I said that probably it's because of denial. Well, maybe that's part of the, you know, not letting into your consciousness the things you can't deal with. Yeah. And I guess that's a definition of denial, maybe. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's denial or if that's because you're not... You're not denying the fact of what happened. You're n- just not creating a picture that that is detailed to the point that it causes you unnecessary anguish or agony. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's kind of how I I look at. I don't. I mean, who knows where the where the where the truth is? And I suppose there's a thousand different. Tr- each person has their own truth. Like your your opinion on on the movie Life is Beautiful. Uh, so you're eight years old. You take the good parts and you say these the good parts I'm in con- I can be in control of the right. bad parts I can't be in control of so right. that's not what I'm going to focus on. You know, one one of the things that I, I always say on this podcast is when when we go through difficult things in life, sometimes if we keep our eyes open and our and our this sounds cheesy but our hearts open as well. Sometimes there are beautiful moments, even in the worst of circumstances. Um, were there any moments for you, moments of, of beauty or humanity uh, that that you recall from the, those terrible times, or is it just kind of a vague gray? No, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of detail. I can't think of anything that is like really positive except maybe you know some friendships and relationships but then you know these people then were gone yeah uh i mean they're they're funny stories that i've i told my kids like my mother and my uncle and i well actually okay i'll tell you some pleasant things my uncle my mother and i lived in one room in the warsaw ghetto uh, and we had a coal stove, which was used for heat and also to cook on. And uh, there was no electricity by that time. And my mother worked in this cafe. That always also kind of gets people, people have strange feelings about. There was a cafe and uh, with uh, very, you know, with music and all sorts of things that people came to in the evening uh, in the ghetto. And then... Uh, so they would, my mother would leave him supper on the stove, and then I would kind of take care of it till he came home to eat, uh, and she had gone to work. But I used to read, I, I, you know, I read a lot. I, I went through every 
every book that I could get my hands on. And maybe that was another one of my escapes. When I read, I completely lost track of reality. And because there was no electricity, I used to end up reading, holding the book out the window, <laughs> where there was the last of the light. You know, there right. are these windows that are... Uh, like French windows, you know, they're open to the yeah. sides. That's how the windows were in the apartment building. And I used to go closer and closer to the window until I finally my hands were stretched outside the window while I was reading the book. So I read this book that I don't know what the book was, but I got totally absorbed in it. And he came home and his supper, which was on the stove, which was some potatoes and meat or something, was charcoal. <laughs> and the room was filled with smoke. <laughs> And as he was furious, and he said to me, well, you know, my supper is all burned. Couldn't you tell it was burning? And I said, gee, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was burning. He said, well, the room was filled with smoke. I said, yes, I know. I opened the windows. <laughs> so that was one of the things. Yeah. And then my mother had sort of an admirer, which was a, who was a kind of a questionable character that people worried about because he seemed to have more freedom of movement than people had. And then I'll tell you more about that. But I used to go to the cafe and hang around, and sometimes I would, the pleasant moments, and sometimes they had a magic show, and the magician used to use me for like being the person out of whose ear he'd pull out the really? coins or something. So that was a lot of fun. But my mother and my mother waited on tables, so he would sit down with me. And uh, the way pastries are served in Europe, usually you just get a big tray, and then you take, uh, you know, whatever you want. And at the end, the waitress takes away the tray and charges you for what's gone. So he would, my mother would be the one to bring the tray, and he'd say, just leave it here. And I was very, not only was I always hungry, but I was also always liked sweets. So he would just have me eat whatever I wanted of this tray, and my mother, who was waiting on his would come, and she would say, no, no, you don't, can't have her eat all this. And he would say, no, you know, I'm paying, she's my guest, and she can eat whatever she wants of this tray. That, so that, that must have been heaven to be able to eat all those <laughs> sweets during, yeah, uh, that was, during the war. Yeah, so that was a, one of those nice so, moments. So I take it that this, this time period was between the capitulation and the uprising. Uh, no, no. The, well, you mean there were two uprisings. Right. The ghetto, I'm trying to remember. I think the way it worked is that the Jews were first all registered. Then they were told to move into certain sections of town uh, so that all the Jews could only live in certain parts of town. But, of course, there were non-Jews living in those parts of town. So there was a lot of exchange of apartments going on. So people would go into, you know, give up their apartments, and whoever wasn't Jewish had to actually move out of those sections. Mm -hmm. and the Jews had to move in. And uh, that took a while. And in 1942, I have it all down somewhere because I started writing the, the sequence, but I don't remember, but you can get that on the Internet too. Sometime at that point, when finally all the Jews that, they, that the Germans knew about had moved into the ghetto, into that, those sections of town, and there were two sections there was something that was called a large ghetto, which incorporated 
the large Jewish section that already existed, which was more of a, you know, run-down commercial kind of part. And then there was another part, which was called a small ghetto, uh, which were other streets, and there was a big bridge that went between them over a large intersection of town. Mm. Because otherwise they weren't they were separated by uh, major thoroughfares, so they built a bridge from the large ghetto to the small ghetto and uh at one point, and it almost seemed like overnight there was a wall built around those sections, and that was it, and the ghetto was closed off uh with just a few checkpoints around that you could go in and out if you had papers and stuff like that. And were you in the large or the small? We were in the small ghetto. And was it uh, very, very crowded? Um, I su- Yeah, it was crowded. The large ghetto was more crowded than the small ghetto just because it was a more co- a commercial s- a section of town. All I know is that we ended up renting a room from you know a couple that had mm-hmm. an apartment. And uh, I had recently, there is a, a movie that just came out of some uh, footage that was taken by German soldiers in the ghetto, which I actually been I just filmed. watched that last night. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It was about 48 minutes long, and it was yes. undiscovered footage from the, from the exactly. Warsaw ghetto. Yeah. Okay. Well, I saw that, and I remembered the filming. Really? I was, yes. I remembered that they filmed, and I remembered that they filmed... There's a section where there are women sunbathing in, in bathing suits. Mm-hmm. That was on the roof of the house that I lived in. Really? And I asked my son about it, and, and I said could, he said he couldn't tell it was on the roof, but he just wondered why the surface they were on was kind of rough and uh-huh. weird-looking. It was a roof uh, of a two-story building. And uh, so I saw the house. Yeah. And the weird thing is that I had remembered the the building we lived in as a tall apartment building, and then I recognized the house. It was very, you know, it was like you recognize something that you don't think that's the way it's going to look, and yet right. you recognize it. Yeah. So I recognized the building, and I'm saying, "Wow, that is the house we lived in, and it's only two stories high." And I had remembered it as a tall apartment building. And then I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute, we lived on the second floor, and I don't remember that anybody lived above us. Right. <laughs> and also, you're a kid, and everything seems so That's gigantic right. when, yeah. you're, when you're a kid. That's so funny. I was watching that last night, knowing that I was going to interview you today, and thinking as I was watching, I wonder if... I wonder if she- She's ever seen that from from that angle. Yeah, I wonder I rem- if she remembers that bridge. I remember when they came and filmed because they were filming the women on the on the roof, and there was a lot of, you know, feelings around people. No, don't be there. Don't let them film you. And some people want to be filmed, and other people, you know, didn't want to be filmed and felt it wasn't right. So, so I remember that. I didn't know I was Jewish. We were my parents were not religious. I never was talked about. And and one of the things when we went into the ghetto, I felt very resentful of being there with all these Jews. You know, I mean, right. I'm kind of what do I have right. in common with these people? And I once said something, and my uncle got really mad at me. And I felt like you know it was like kind of an indignity that I had to be there with all these people. And I didn't think that I had no idea I was in any way belonged with. But my stepfather at that point was in South America. 
in Brazil from various adventures that are long and complicated. But he left money in Brazil for somebody in Brazil to keep sending us, us food packages. But the food packages were things like coffee, canned fruit, and sardines. And there were things that were a luxury. And uh, so my mother would do better by selling them and buying us bread than, you know, for us to use right. those things. But in order to sell them, she had to sell them to restaurants that were on the other side, that were on the Aryan side, not inside the ghetto. And uh, this is kind of, you know, this is my mother's thing. And she had this friend who seemed to be helping her go in and out. Uh, very romantic character who rode a motorcycle. And I don't really, you know, the trouble is that my mother is not alive anymore, and sometimes I wish that I could have asked her things. Yeah. But by the time we came here, we were with my stepfather, who was very jealous of her time away from him, so those things were never talked about. I see. But anyhow, she, uh, she would go out and sell the things she got to restaurants and come back with real food except for one time when a can of something came that had no, the label had came off. And I really remember it so vividly, so it must have been such a treat. The label came off. She didn't know what was inside, so she couldn't sell it. And we opened the can, and it was pineapple, you know, cut in mm -hmm. long wedges. Yeah. And I had never had pineapple before. It was just an amazing thing to have. Wow. But uh, my mother used to go in and out of the ghetto, and she was a very attractive young woman at the time, and she claimed that she did it simply by the ghettos, the entrances to the ghetto were like, there was a Polish policeman on the Aryan side, there was a German in the middle, and there was a Jewish policeman on the ghetto side. Mm -hmm. There was Jewish police, which did not have a very good history. And... Uh, she said that she, and there was always people milling about, you know, showing their papers or trying to get out or trying to bribe somebody to get out, that she would, to get out of the ghetto, she would try to edge as close as she could to the Aryan side, and then whoever stopped her, she would say she wanted to go into the ghetto right. to see somebody or something. Right. And they said, would well, you have papers? And she said, no, but I, I really just want to go in. And they would say, no, you can't go in. And they would get impatient with her and wave her away, and she'd leave. That's hilarious. She said she had a much harder time getting back in. Really? She would have to try to convince them that she really belonged inside and stuff like oh, that. Oh, how bizarre. So it was, but she used to do this, and there was a curfew. And many times when she went out, she didn't come back by curfew time. And my uncle would start tearing out his hair and saying, this is it, that's it, she, she must have gotten killed, this is terrible, you know, and I'd be there thinking, okay, what, how do I take this, you know, and I had a, a mechanism that I used, which is that I said to myself, okay, now you got the news that your mother's dead, what do you do next? And I would go through a procedure, I would say, well, I will go to this neighbor, and I would tell him such and such, and then I get my clothes, and then I would do this, and I would have, I would just go through this entire rehearsal until she came wow. back. While in the ghetto, people were being continually selected. 
for deportation, what they call deportation, but it's really going to camps or directly to gas chambers. And you got taken to this railroad station, the Umschlagplatz, and put on the train to, you know, uh, they were you supposedly moved to the east or something. Did everybody know that the, that they were going to uh, to die after a while? Okay, after a while, because the story is that some guys followed the railroad tracks mm-hmm. and realized what they know. No, they marked the trains and realized the trains came back two hours later, so they couldn't have been going to where they said they were going. I see. Because that same car came right back. Right. So then they followed the railroad tracks and they got to the gas chambers mm-hmm. and concentration camps and so forth. But my uncle, because he, w- he worked at the trail station, he actually, you know, he could go in and out of there and move around and he knew the back doors, etc. So he had actually saved some people. Uh, by leading them out, if there was like people usually were like massed in this waiting station while waiting to go on the trains, and uh, at that point they uh, he was able to get some people out. Uh, the selections were constantly refined so that you had to be working, and then you had to, uh, or the head of the household, the head of the household had had some kind of work papers, then the household was saved. So you just, everybody came, was asked to, leave, to come out of the building, and then you get lined up and show your documents, and they say right or left, and, and, uh, and some people got taken away and other people were left. And a little horror story of that is I remember one time a guy was, uh, had a suitcase in his hand, and he was spared because he had the correct papers and suddenly the suitcase made funny noises and they opened up and there was a baby inside. He was put in the other category of people to be taken away. And you saw this happen or you heard it? No, I was was there. But these are the kind of things that I don't... They're not constant memories with me. You know, if I talk to somebody, I... I remember. I mean, I can rem- I can access that, and it sort of shakes me up. But you know, then it's gone. You know, it's not like something I think about a lot. Uh, and uh, my other kind of like a weird memory like that is uh, a lot of places you walk. There were starving children on the street, and uh, my mother and I had gone someplace and were able to get a loaf of bread, and she was carrying it back. And a kid just ran up and bit into the loaf of bread. Oh, my God. And she said, he, she just, you know, let him have it, and we went home. So, uh, and there were, like, dead bodies on the street because it was a typhus epidemic. And so people were dying of that. My, I had a great aunt, my mother's young, my grandmother's younger sister, who was a doctor in the ghetto. So... When my mother, they lived like a couple of blocks away from us in the ghetto, and I used to often take my meals with them. So my mother would work. I would walk over to their house and have dinner with them and then come home. But my uncle, because he were where he was working, he could do two things. He could bring us food because he was unloading food for the Germans, so he would bring us food. And he also would tell us when the next, where the next 
a selection was going to happen. Mm. Eventually, uh, my mo- my mother used her pre-war passport, which had her maiden name on it, and and then was able to pass as his wife because he had the same name, and we could use his work papers. But after a while, it wasn't just uh, just the head of the household that had to be working so you could be spared, but everybody had to be working. So my mother, there was a, a factory that made German uniforms called Tebbins. And my mother went... My mother always had a network of people, you know, that she was, they were helping her and they knew things and all of that. So she went to work at Tebbins. And at Tebbins, they had children. There were lots of women working there, sewing machines. And they had a room where all the children could go and play. When my mother refused to be separated from me, and I was tall for my age, I was eight years old, she put high heels on me and a kerchief on my head, and she set me behind a sewing machine really? next to her and actually yeah i just got a few years ago got some uh money from the germans for being a slave laborer and it was my my wages really and uh wasn't very much but i was only there for like i don't know maybe what, a month what did did you experience any emotion when you got that well, that's a that's a that's another way story because that money got taken for some debt of my husband's that yeah. I didn't even know about. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was gone. But uh, oh, well, one time one time the Germans came and they took all the children that were in the children's area, and uh, there was a huge commotion and a lot of the women, you know, tried to go after them and they just came with with. Uh, you know, to big trucks and loaded up all the kids. And and you saw this happen? Yeah. What? I mean, you know, some of that, it's like a dream. I mean, cause stuff like that, because I didn't, I heard it happen, you know. Mm. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, didn't look at it. I mean, there was commotion, there was crying, there were people screaming. And there was like, like what penetrated to me was more my mother saying, see, I knew this would happen. That's why you're here. Right. You know, so so there was this my mother protecting me from you know like, and you have to do. In other words, I think what maybe what it does it, it. The protection is that you have to cut some empathy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you think I'm not an empathetic person. I think sometimes I'm not. In other words, I can only take so much misery from other people, and then I'm very active in trying to help them fix it but if they don't fix it or if they don't want to hear my uh advice about fixing it they just want to keep telling me how miserable they are i do cut off empathy i think i think that's super healthy really oh absolutely <laughs> you know at, at some point you have to take care of yourself if somebody's not willing to get into the solution you know that doesn't mean they have to do everything that you suggest but mm-hmm. if they are not if they just want to be in self-pity and wallow in self-pity and not work towards a solution, I think the healthiest thing in the world is to mm-hmm. is to distance yourself from them. Not forever, but temporarily. Yeah. And, to, and to say, hey, with love, I have to detach from you because it's too painful for me to be around mm-hmm. you and to see you in this in this state where you're not willing to, to help yourself yeah. or try something. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think playing victim is an addiction for a lot of people. Because then they don't have to take responsibility for themselves. 
I think that's a very, very addicting uh, quality because in some ways it reverts us back to childhood. What What are your opinions on? Well, I, I mean, sometimes I think that it's almost like a physical drive towards life, you know? That maybe it's not intellectual. Maybe some people just don't have the life force and other people have yeah. more of a life force. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's like I can feel very upset about something and go outside and look at trees and flowers and get suddenly really uplifted by the fact that the world out there is incredibly constructed you know, and flowers bloom in the spring, and that that whole thing is totally amazing, and it will cheer me up tremendously. Yeah, you know that maybe by having your life threatened, that just the idea of being alive can life can get very, you know, exciting. Is is it fair to say that you're happy to wake up uh, every day and there's a certain vigor? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I sometimes get annoyed myself because I get into situations that I don't know how to get out of them, you know, and then I s- spend a lot of time, you know, wanting to get out. But uh, generally, I try not to persist in situations that don't make me happy. Mm-hmm. What was different about the Holocaust is that people were actually be dehumanizing uh, a population that had once been part of them. Right. And that that seems to me the weird thing. And what happened in Poland was that while we were in the ghetto, at one point there was a whole lot of German Jews that arrived on their way to the wherever, you know, gas chambers or whatever. We didn't know what they were. We know that all of a sudden all these people appeared who seemed really starved and done in and they were in transit and I think they were there overnight. I mean, they, it seems like ghosts and I had read about it later that these were German but we knew they were German and people, and it was at that point that people in the ghetto said, if they're doing this to their own people, oh then God. forget about your survival. Yeah. You're not going to make it. At that point, the war was ongoing, and they really couldn't spare much of the army. They couldn't spare much of the army. So the the the... People who were the Germans who were involved in the, in deporting Jews in uh, inside the ghetto were Hitlerjugend. They were eighteen, nineteen-year-olds. Mm-hmm. At that point, we were moving from what my uncle would come and he would tell us which house had just been emptied, mm-hmm. and we would go there. Those are some of the thing I'm imprinted with: is moving from from house to house and entering a house where people had just been taken out of. And we entered uh, an apartment where there was still food on the table, like people were caught in the middle of a meal. Oh, my God. And there were photographs thrown all over the floor, and it looked like people had pulled out drawers and were searching through that to see what they wanted to take with them since everybody thought they were being taken someplace where they might survive and might have. 
And I have a thing about photographs. I really don't like to take photographs, and I don't like to have photographs that much. And I think it dates to that moment of seeing all these photographs all over the floor of people I didn't know who they were. And after they took the children from the Tebbins factory, they came a couple of days later and emptied out the whole factory. And my mother said to me, this guy over there, and he really looks like he knows what he's doing. Let's follow him. So where everybody was supposed to empty the building, we went with follow this man. And he went into the basement, and he apparently had some friends outside who were on a work shift who then closed up the entrance to the basement with bricks. And there was 13 people in there. And we could hear the everybody leaving the building, and we could hear the Germans marching around and looking for people. And eventually they left. And uh, while I was there, there was a really unpleasant event, which, uh, which is that I had just gotten over being sick with uh, some kind of a, you know, a chest thing. I was prone to coughs. And I started to cough, and uh, while the you know Germans were still meandering about, and people got really upset, they were really terrified, and basically said that uh, we better you know kill her, oh my because God. she's going to give us away. And my mother said, "No, no, I'll take care of it." And she put her hand over my mouth, so I couldn't cough, and I started, you know, suffocating. And I just remember that as a really horrible thing of, it was okay because it was my mother and I knew she wasn't going to let me die, but I was choking and and it was really, it was really horrible. That, those 13 people stayed together. So we we moved around the city with my uncle giving us some information about where to go and stuff. And when we eventually got caught, it was the same group of people. And uh, they asked everybody to leave the building, and my mother said, "We're gonna. There's a closet under the stairs, and we're gonna hide in it." And I was terrified of hiding. I think partly from that experience of having my, yeah. you know, of of choking and not being able to cough. And the thing that to me was the worst was was my was most terrified of, and I was what eight years old, of just being, you know somebody opening a door and seeing me there and shooting me, right? And just dying like a rat, basically. And I said to my mother, and I was like that as a kid. It was funny because there a lot of things that I wanted to do or wouldn't let my mother do. And I said, you go ahead and hide if you want to, but I'm going out there. You know, I'm not going to hide in the closet. So, of course, she came. And uh, so we were taken directly to the train station, and my mother said, well, don't worry because, uh, you know, her brother is there and he can probably get us out. But she didn't quite want to depend on that. So, and people kept, and so that's why I started with the, these were young kids like Hitler, Jugend, and people were being led like six across down the street. And it was middle of the night to the, to the train stations. And uh, they were saying to these guys, uh, you know, let me go, let me go, here's my diamond ring. And these 18-year-olds were saying, I got all the diamond rings I need, you know, I don't want your diamond ring. And then my mother 
had a little Viennese watch that my father had given her. It was like a miniature watch. And he said, she said, would you take this? And the kids said, oh, yeah, my girlfriend will really like that. So he took it. So we're walking, and my mother says, well, what? Uh, you took my watch. She says, well, he said, well, I'm not going to take you by the hand. So as we were walking down the street, uh, there was a side street, and my mother grabbed me and pulled me, and we ran down the side street. And the whole idea was when you bribe somebody, you expected that they would shoot after you. They have to because to show it to the others, but that they wouldn't shoot to, to hit. Right. Right? And that always fascinated me was the idea that basically all these Jews being herded were really not human, right? And there was absolutely no penalty for shooting somebody because these guys used to get drunk or not get drunk, just walk down the street at night and shoot people when they felt like it inside the ghetto. But that when you made a commercial <laughs> transaction with somebody, that to seem to me that must have in some way made you human. So now there was a contract, right. and you, you know, I mean, he could have taken that watch, and he could have still shot us, and nobody right. would have cared, right? But that wouldn't have been nice. <laughs> that's right. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that that I always find that. I found that, that really is, that's amazing. That's fascinating. I always thought that was just an amazing thing. But anyway, so we run down the street, but right now we're in, a, we're in the middle of the night when there's a curfew, and it was raining. It was October. And we run into a doorway of a building somewhere and uh, just to get out of the rain, and we hear a patrol coming down the street, down the whatever it was in, in there. Uh, and it's a, it's a Polish policeman and a German. And uh, my mother was wearing an armband. I wasn't because you didn't have to do it. was 12. So the first thing she did is she took her armband off and she stuffed it in her purse. And uh, and I started running to the building, and she said, no, 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 we're going to go out and we're going to talk to them. And she took me by the hand, and she approached this patrol, and in a with a peasant accent, which my mother could do, started haranguing them. She said, I came here to do some trading because they told me this was the best place and that you could sell things for a lot of money and you could get from... But it's horrible. Since it's raining and, and I'm with my child and I can't get out of here and it's dangerous and there's shooting and could you please tell me how I can get out of here? And they said, look, lady, no, we don't know what to do. We can't help you. Just leave us alone. And she, says, and she just kept doing it. She just kept, kept haranguing them. You know, I, I just mm. got to get out of here. Somebody's got to tell me what to do. I mean, I had no idea it was going to be like that. That's, nobody warned me that that's how it was in here. And, and I just really, you know, I just thought I could make some money, and I don't know what to do. They said, well, we need a bicycle. Do you know where we can get a bicycle? She said, no, I have no idea where you can get anything. You just got to get me out of here. And they said, look, lady, just... Leave us alone, too. <laughs> and they walked off. Wow. And I, she said that her only fear was that I was so pale that she was afraid I was going to pass out. Yeah. And I was afraid that they were going to ask to see some documents, and if she opened her bag, she would have her armband oh. in the bag. Oh, my God. So that was... So after that, she said, this is it. We're getting out of here. Meantime, she's trying to get... A message to my uncle that we're that we're okay, 
and she finally found a Jewish policeman, and she had promised him, and who had told her that he would let him know because he was going down to the to the railroad station, and uh, and she had told him to tell him to f- call her at some, or she was going to call him because there were actually public telephones you could use. Uh, she would call him at the road station at a given time. And uh, meantime, back at the ranch, my uncle realized that, that heard that this house was raided and realized that these people were not going to be sitting in the station where he thought he could get us out, that they were being put directly onto the train. Mm. So he decided to go too. And he packed a little suitcase, and he lined up to go with everybody onto the train. And the people who were with us, whom he knew because we had been traveling together, started motioning to him that we're not there. And he didn't believe it. He decided that my mother told them to do that, to protect him, and that he would just get on the train and he'd find us on the train. And apparently at some last minute, this policeman who my mother talked to or somebody got a message to him that we really are not there. Yeah. And he left. And he almost got on the train. Yeah, he to, was just about to And he would have gone to, to Treblinka or yeah, Auschwitz. That's right. He was about to get on the train. Oh, my God. So that So when they finally, he came and met us as soon as curfew was over, which was like 6 in the morning. And I remember that was such an emotional meeting. It was like, you know. Saved, and my mother said to him, "Look, this is it. I am not staying here for another minute. We're getting out of here." So, and I had because we had been like traveling from place to place. I had like about three layers of clothes on, and I had a knapsack with a with a pillow and some little odds and ends. And that day we went from ghetto uh, gate to gate. There were like uh, several gates. Uh, you know, these checkpoints for entering, trying to get out. And uh, and people were bribing their way out, but you had to bribe three individuals, mm-hmm. the Polish policeman, <laughs> the Jewish policeman, and the German. And, the German. Yeah. and my mother didn't have any money. All she had was jewelry. And they said, sorry, lady, we can't take jewelry because we don't know how to divide that up. Yeah, it was all it was all as simple as that. You know? It's crazy when you. It, it's really in so many ways. It comes down to commerce. I know. Yeah, know? isn't that isn't that yeah. weird? So and what happened? Like, I mean, I've always liked Hannah Arendt's book, The Banality of Evil, mm-hmm. because you always you get down to it, and there's something really banal about mm-hmm. it. Well, she met some other people that she knew, and they said, "Well, there is a a guy who is a." Uh, there's a man who is a, uh, what do you call it, like a caretaker of this, uh, there was a court building, one of those huge buildings that went over a couple of blocks, and it had an entrance on the ghetto side, but also had an entrance on the Aryan side. He says there's a guy who's like a caretaker of that building, and if you meet him, at that entrance, after 5 o'clock, when the building is closed, he'll take people through the building, and he's just only one person to bribe. Mm. So a whole group of people gathered, and, uh, and this elderly uh, you know, gentleman who was the uh, janitor in the building collected 
stuff from everybody that he uh -huh. got paid for and took us up this uh through the building you know up the staircase down another staircase out another door and i had a another one of those seminal events i had a i'm a clumsy person i had a cake of soap in my knapsack, and as we got topped to this marble stairs, the cake of soap fell out of my knapsack and went bang, 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 bang down all the stairs. Oh my! And God. that was another one of those moments. But anyway, nothing happened, and uh, and they all, we all got out on the other side, and now we're in a city which is seems perfectly normal with people walking around. You know, I mean, it was like ins that's the insane part of it. You come out of a place where everybody is about to be killed. And the weird, other weird thing that happened in the ghetto that year is that the trees didn't bloom. They didn't get new leaves on. And I remember that it was very eerie, and I thought maybe because there was a lot of smoke. I don't yeah. really know why, but there, it was a different vegetation. And, uh, but you're just a block away, <laughs> and you walk out of the door, and you're in the same city, one block away, and it's a perfectly normal city. With buses and train tramways and people walking around, going and how, home and, and how shopping about the, and everything. the demeanor of people was it just night and day? Well, it was just it was just, it was just normal. And my mother said to me, "I mean, we obviously looked weird, you know. I I had all these weird clothes on, and we didn't know how much the bus fare was." Right. And my mother said to me, "Now just pretend we're from the country." She said, get on the bus and look up and say, wow, look at these big buildings. Have you ever seen such big buildings before? Yeah. And so her thing was always good, you know, instead of hiding, you attract attention to yourself, but lead people in another direction. Right, like with the policeman about uh, yeah. pretending yeah. that she, she was yeah. selling yeah. something and pissed off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was always very good. Like I've used that with, <laughs> with spending stuff for a ticket of of deluging them with so much right. trivial that they say, "All right, lady, just go on. Don't do this again." So, um, so we came out, and it was close. It was evenings, and there was again there was an evening curfew, and we basically had no place to go. You know, we just dumped on the street. Yeah. And it's just you and your mother at yeah, this point. Yeah, my mother, and actually this guy who took us through. Uh, since I think we must have been more lost than, than other people in the group or had no place to go. He walked us for a couple of blocks just so we could start to feel a little more self-assured. And then my mother remembered that my stepfather had an aunt who had married an, a Catholic and had converted, and nobody knew she was Jewish, and she lived in Warsaw, and she had an apartment. So, uh, so... She said, we'll go over there. So we went, we took the bus and we went over there. I mean, this is a city my mother had lived in. It's not like she's in a strange right. place. And uh, we go over there and the woman opens the door and she sees us and she's totally terrified. I mean, at this point, there was a death penalty for harboring a Jew. Mm-hmm. And she says, you can't stay here. You, do, you know, you can't do this to me. You know, how dare you? And uh, by, you know... We can all get killed. And my mother said, look, it's, it's almost curfew. We're going to stay here till, till 5 o'clock tomorrow morning when the curfew is lifted. But I'm staying here tonight. So she made us crawl on the floor so nobody could see us through the windows. That there were pe other people mm. in her house. And she was totally horrible and terrified. 
and came five o'clock, we left. And my mother remembered that she had a friend who had an apartment in Warsaw. And uh, she kept that apartment. She, she didn't let it, she, you know, when she moved into the ghetto, she moved in with her husband who was an attorney and he was a fairly well-known attorney. And she moved into the ghetto with him, but she kept the, her apartment with an old family maid an old family retainer who brought her up, who my mother knew because this was a, you know, there was like in Poland you have like a peasant woman that comes and lives with you and is the maid and the n nanny. And my mother, and this was a, a childhood friend, so my mother had been in and out of that house. So she went, she went there and she knocked on the door and the woman recognized her and she said we had no place to stay and she said, well, look, there's plenty of room here. Just stay, you know, as long as you like. I don't care. I'm here all by myself. Just stay. It's completely different than that other person. So we moved into the apartment, and we lived there for the rest of the war until the Warsaw Uprising. But that's a whole other story. But uh, the thing about uh, the wo the woman who wouldn't let, you know, who didn't want us to stay and who was horrible and terrified, who was my stepfather's aunt, after the war was over, my stepfather sent her money every month to support her. She was an old lady at that point. Mm -hmm. And then we went to Warsaw after my mother died in 1972, and we went to visit her. And I was really... It's funny. I was, you know, I was very upset, and I just basically just isolated myself from everybody, and I didn't talk to anybody. And my stepfather kept saying, what's the matter with you? Well, you know, why aren't you friendly? What's going on? What's wrong? I didn't want to say anything. I said, this is the woman who, you know, was going to turn us out so we could get killed. So um, I never, I didn't know if he knew. I, I didn't know if my, I feared my mother should have told him. I didn't want to be the one to tell him, certainly not when we were visiting her. And, uh, but there was another relative uh, there who was a really nice woman that we, you know, stayed with. And, uh, I mean, after the war, there was another uh, who had survived. And I told her how upset I was about having to go visit this aunt of my stepfather's. And she said... Well, she said, you're not the only one. She said she did the same. She turned her brother out, and he got picked up two hours later and killed. Oh, my God. So she said, you're not the only one she wouldn't take in. But... Uh, and imagine how that, how that woman must have had to have shut down emotionally the rest of her life to have I, lived with herself. I know. And I know that pissed me. I mean, every every month my, for ten years, my twenty years, my stepfather was sending her money. Uh, which was, I mean, she was his relative. And yeah. But anyhow, so we. Uh, but my uncle stayed because he felt he was safe because he had this job. Well, things got so lawless inside the ghetto. This was October of forty three. Things got so lawless inside the ghetto that, that the Germans were just shooting people on sight. You know, they didn't care. So uh, they didn't take time to ask you to show you their documents. So the, whatever the, the authority was decided that 
you know, there were people that they needed, like my uncle who had a job of unloading the trains with the mm. food supplies for the Germans. So the people who absolutely had an iron-clad reason to be there were wearing numbers, large metal things on a metal chain on their necks so they would be immediately identifiable. Mm-hmm. And we used to... My mother had a, a setup with my uncle where she would talk to him on the phone. And then there was like a bombed out building on the ghetto side that you could go upstairs in. And there was a building on the, on the Aryan side where you could see that building from. And she would set up a time with him and we would go up the building and look out a window in the hallway. And he would go into the opposite building so we could see him. Mm. So that way she could see that he was still alive. Wow. And I remember he was just really emaciated and he had this metal, you know, number on his neck. Well, in uh, February of 40, I think it was in February of 44, he came out through the sewers and joined us. Wow. And then the uprising was in April. Mm-hmm. And that was just, you know, that was just a group of people who were basically knew they were committing suicide, but yeah. rather than getting killed, they were going to do it that way. And uh, so that was, and, the, and then the ghetto was burned to the ground, and that was the end of the Warsaw Ghetto. So then we lived in Warsaw uh, in that apartment. The woman who owned the apartment came out of the ghetto with her husband and her mother-in-law. So at that point, there were like uh, six of us in the apartment. And when she first came out, of course, she wanted us to leave because she she wanted, you know, it's not just a two-bedroom apartment, I guess. And oh, and a room was rented to a guy who worked for the underground, who was not a Jew, and uh, who my mother became friendly with. And then my mother and this woman, her old friend, started with having a kind of a slightly adversary situation because she wanted my mother to leave. My mother didn't want to leave. Uh, She was friendly with the guy who was living there. He knew they were Jewish. He started bringing in arms and and underground papers to keep in the apartment, keep saying, what do you people care? If they catch you, you're dead anyway. So it doesn't matter if they catch you with arms. Why they catch you, right. (laughs) (laughs) Except I felt that was sending things. And my mother began to work for the underground, and she was working as a courier. Uh, That's one of the things they mentioned on this documentary last night, is how the women and the children would be couriers for the resistance. Yeah, so my mother worked for the... That was for the... Uh, a Polish underground, except the Polish underground was quite anti-Semitic. Really? So, oh, yeah. So they didn't know she was Jewish when she was working. I mean, this guy mm. knew, but the other people right. didn't know. But um, we needed, you know, papers. And the underground, and they were very expensive to come by. And my mother always had to do things in ways that did not involve money because we didn't have the money. So she told the underground that her husband was a prisoner of war who had escaped and the Germans were looking for us, looking for him and therefore looking for us. And they gave her a set of false papers mm. with a different name on it. The, the ghetto uprising was in April and that was it. The ghetto was gone, everybody was gone. Mm. It was all over except for the people who made it through. 
There are a couple of other weird things, which is the Germans decided at one point that all the Jews they didn't get, they weren't going to get because they were so well hidden mm -hmm. or somehow so that, you know, they got everybody that was gettable and that was it. So they made one last attempt. Mm -hmm. They made an announcement that they understood that that was the case and therefore these people were safe. And therefore, if you paid some large sum of money and uh, appeared at a certain place, you would be taken to Cyprus and you could live in Cyprus. Mm -hmm. You were going to survive anyway, but they just didn't want them in Poland. So at f nobody trusted that, and first a few people went, and then they sent letters back from Cyprus. Yes, indeed, we're in Cyprus, and everything is wonderful, and everything is fine. And my uncle, who was always, you know, I mean, there he was. He was a young man. He was totally confined, and uh, he wanted to go didn't have the money. There was no way he could make it go. He really suffered. He really wanted to figure out some way he could go. It was called the Polish Hotel, and that's, it's called the Polish Hotel Affair, where uh, all these people were supposed to go to this hotel, and the Germans would pick them up, put them on a plane, and send them off to Cyprus. Well, that first group went to Cyprus. That was the last group that went to Cyprus. Oh, uh, the rest were killed. No, yeah, nobody ever heard from the rest of the people. They just they just wanted to pull out some of the monies that they knew right. these people had, they had to have in order to be able to maintain themselves. After my mother got her papers from the underground uh, and was in a real tension with the woman who owned the apartment moving out, the Germans had declared that there had to be a certain number of people registered per apartment, otherwise they would assign people. At that point, my mother was a godsend to this woman because she and I could be registered in the apartment because we now had these fake papers. Otherwise, they would have assigned somebody to the apartment. She mm -hmm. would have been done in. So everything was fine, and we all stayed in the apartment. And uh, the German, the uh, but the way that they supported themselves is that the uh, the husband and the mother-in-law and my uncle baked pastries at night because the whole idea was that they should sleep during the day so they wouldn't be seen moving around the apartment. Yeah. So they were up all night baking pastries. In the morning on her way to work, my mother would deliver them to restaurants. Mm -hmm. And that was and they would buy the the ingredients on the black market and the only problem was that gas was rationed so they had to turn off the gas meter in the apartment so there was always thing of oh, the gas meter guy is coming is the meter is back on or isn't it on and they had a little hiding place in the apartment where people would get squashed in when if they thought somebody was coming what the germans did is uh, did you see the pianist mhm mm okay great movie yeah that was very similar i mean that was kind of my that was kind of my my story. He was in Warsaw, and I didn't know how clear it was what was going on, but the Germans were evacuating the city block by block, and you were supposed to go into this main square and then go to the railroad station and go through a medical exam and be sent to war camps, and, uh, and then they systematically burned the city block by block. As mm -hmm. soon as the block was supposed to be evacuated, they would set it on fire. In that movie, I didn't think it was clear because there was all these firebombing going yeah. all, all yeah. over. Well, that's what it was. They were just burning the city. It wasn't like a war or anything. Right. So, uh, 
but we couldn't go through a medical because of my uncle. Right. And we couldn't go to the, <laughs> to the railroad station with him. So we meandered around the city trying to figure out what to do. And at that point, things were really different because the Germans that were there were not the SS. They were the Wehrmacht. There was, it was the front because the front was, was right there. The Russians were across the river. Mm -hmm. The front was moving. The whole thing about the uprising is that the Poles thought that the, that the Russians were coming. They were right across the river. Warsaw was on the river. It was like they were in New Jersey and we were in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Polish underground wanted to have the, the political plum of being able to hand over a liberated city to the Russians and meet them as equals and not have the Russians liberate them. Mm -hmm. And that's what the uprising was all about. Right. So in the meantime, the Russians just sat there, and yeah. they didn't come across. Yeah, the Russians were certainly no friends to the uh, to, to the Polish people. Yeah, well, the Polish underground was a very uh, reactionary underground, mm -hmm. and by that there was also a communist underground. But by that time, that was pretty well wiped out mm -hmm. with the help of the other Polish underground, mm -hmm. and a lot of them had gone over to the Russian side anyway. So there were two two underground movements, and the communist one was weak and pretty much gone. They mainly be then when they saw that the other Polish underground was not their friends, they went to the. A lot of them joined the partisans in the woods, but um, thing went on for like two months, and we were happened to live in the building we lived in, was a very massive building that belonged to the Bayer Aspirin Company. There was a German building, and there were a lot of Germans in the building, and we were one of the few apartments that we had that was Paul's because she had had this apartment for a long time. And in the basement, there was like a three-story basement, which was a furniture company kept it with for this storehouse. So it was like the perfect shelter, you know. So we could, uh, a lot of people just moved into the basement and lived there for these two months, and it was a whole other other piece of it. Uh, but my uncle, at one point, the German declared an armistice and said they un they understood that it was the population was be was trapped here and that they weren't, you know, necessarily wanting to fight the Germans. So they would call an armistice and people could leave the city. So again, some people said, no, we no, we don't trust them. We're going to do it. It's a trap. Other people said, come on, let's get out of here. So my uncle was the one who was either going to go or wanted to, went outside to see what was going on, and there was, uh, there were, the, the house started being bombed, and he got a shrapnel in his leg. So he was laid up. At one point, that whole building was like, see, there was like street fighting, and it changed from street to street. And at one point, the whole building was like just an island in, among the Germans, whereupon a lot of people left went through the sewers and various things and went to the other side of the city because it was being shelled, at which point the Germans stopped shelling this because we were just left like half a block or something and shelled the other side, and the people tried to get back. But we couldn't leave because my uncle couldn't walk, mm -hmm. so we stayed there. And uh, so when it was all over and they were evacuating the, the 
the army, the Polish army capitulated and the city was being evacuated and systematically burned. And we started wandering around the city. And because the Germans were military, they really, you know, they were kind of as confused about what was going on as the population. And uh, the woman who had their apartment was educated in Germany and spoke fluent German. And I'll just give you, I mean, this is going on too long. I'll give you one other interesting incident. Uh, my uncle found, started talking to a couple of German soldiers and found, and he had a, a, a camera. And he said, I'll give you this camera if you would escort us out of the city so that we could leave the checkpoint of the city with a German escort. So they said, sure. So he gave them oh he gave them a watch and he gave them a camera and we found some guy who had a wagon with um, because he had come to evacuate his family he was a Volksdeutsch you could declare yourself of German ancestry and then you had special privileges and it was, you were called a Volksdeutsch so he was Volksdeutsch and uh, he had all these papers but he couldn't find anybody you know the whole city was in an uproar people were just wandering around he couldn't find any of his family but he had a pass for taking six people out of the city so he started selling that we my mother met this woman who had a bunch of money anyway so she and she had just had a dog who had puppies and people were eating dogs she was trying to protect her dogs with puppies so she got on the wagon with her dog and the puppies and they put me on the wagon and she was scared to be alone my mother said well come with you but you got to pay for all this so she did and uh and the the old mother-in-law who only spoke yiddish went on and and told everybody that she was deaf and dumb not to try to talk to her she won't she can't talk and uh, they put us on the wagon because it didn't fit all the people because there was already too many more people than he had a pass for and uh they said you just take these people and some of our stuff and we'll walk behind you and it turned out that there was more checkpoints afterwards you know it wasn't just that checkpoint of getting out of the city and when this guy realized it he got a little panicked so that he had all these people that he didn't have permits for so he just whipped up the horses and took off and I was on the wagon and this old lady was on the wagon and this other woman and I see my my mother and my uncle and this this other woman uh just getting smaller in the distance and we're taking off and we come to the ne to another checkpoint and at this checkpoint they said to the guy didn't you leave some people behind you aren't there people are more people coming and he said uh yes he said well you're to wait here till they arrive <laughs> and he thought that was it you know yeah. he was dead so they arrived and the the German at the checkpoint said, okay, are these the people that are with you? You can go now. And he had no idea what happened. Right. So as soon as we got out of the sight of this checkpoint, he said, all right, everybody out. I'm not taking you any further. And just dropped us off on the side of the road. What had apparently happened was that when they saw the wagon disappearing in the distance with me and the other people on it, uh there was a German 
officer's car went by, and this woman who spoke from German flagged him down and said, we're leaving the city, and this guy took off with my friend's child and all this, and I'm German, mm-hmm. and he's not, you know, he had, we had a contract with him, and right. he's not doing it. So he said, you're German, and she showed him letters. She had a brother in Germany who actually was, at that point, a concentration camp. She showed him letters addressed to her from Germany, mm-hmm. and she spoke perfect German. She said, yeah, I'm German, but he's got all my documents on the wagon, right. and everything is there, and uh, you got to help me. So he said, all right, I'm going down there. I'll, I'll take care of it. Yeah. It's amazing, time <laughs> after time after time. I know, it's like, but, you know, when, when, you, when uh, people say, well, it's such this amazing combination of coincidences, and then you, I think to myself, yeah, the people who didn't have an amazing uh, uh, continuation of coincidences aren't here. Right. It's like a selection process, yeah. you know? They're not here. But then again, there's this other side of it. Like I was saying, the people who are... Sure, that everything is going to work out okay in some mystical way. And if you read about people like Napoleon or Churchill or or um, de Gaulle, they too, there are all these constant things, and when they do these things, they go out on a limb with a sense that everything's going to work out. So sometimes I think there may be some kind of a precognition, you know? Yeah. Do you think that's a part that most people have in them, or is she just genetically born to be able to be a survivor like that? Because time after time after time, you were faced with imminent death, and your mother, just a bolt of lightning, hit her, Mm -hmm. and she just... Well, I think it's a, yeah, it's a certain kind of self-assurance. My mother was held back. She wanted to be, to take over her father's business before the war. He didn't, he felt it wasn't appropriate. He wanted to be ex and son, right? She wanted to go to law school. They wouldn't let her, so she went and took a secretarial or an accountant's course. And uh, she wanted to marry somebody. They wouldn't let her marry, so she married somebody else. It was my father, and the marriage didn't work out. And in some way, I always think the war years was my mother's at her most energetic and, uh, you know, I hate to say happy because it's like not right, you know. I mean, she was very concerned about her parents. What she did is she worked very hard to get, she decided that the reason her parents wouldn't leave where they were was because of all their possessions, mm-hmm. you know, the, the linens and the silverware and all that. So she got permits to bring all that to Warsaw. And actually, it all arrived in the ghetto and set in big crates, and I don't know what happened to it. She figured if only she could get their possessions there, they wouldn't felt like they had to stay there. And it just it just never happened. But in order to do that, she had to she had to go to the Gestapo and get all these papers. And everybody always said, you know, so she would just walk in there and she'd be charming. At one point, she had a string of pearls she was playing with. I remember this because she always was amused, and it broke, and they fell all over the floor. So she had all these German officers down on their hands and knees trying to pick up the beads that <laughs> had wow. broken. 
I don't know. She was 29. She was very, she was very charming. Yeah. Was she, is she physically attractive? Yeah, she was very yeah, attractive. Yeah, because she, she sounds yeah. so self-assured. Yeah. And she just, kind of, she looks a little like Ingrid, she looked a little like Ingrid yeah. Bergman. She yeah. had that kind of a... Is it, is it fair to say that during the war years, your mother's best qualities were brought out? I think so. But what I have to have, tell you, which is very sad, that when we came here... To the United States. To the United States, which she didn't want to go bec- very much because she had a good job after the war and she had married my stepfather just a year before the war. He was a difficult person and she uh, and she didn't see him. She hadn't seen him for seven years. So she was 29 when he left. She was 36 when she saw him again. And I felt guilty about it because everybody said to her when she said she didn't want to go, they said, your daughter, you have an opportunity to give her a life in the in the United States mm-hmm. and you're not going to do it? That's terrible. And then if you don't like it, you can always come back. Well, she always said she wanted to come back, but she never did. But uh, that first year... Well, we lived in New York City, and my stepfather was working somewhere in an engineer and not making very much money. There was, you know, housing was really hard at that point. We lived in one of those transient hotels. It was all horrible, and she got very depressed and quite sick. And she was probably sick for a whole year. I think she had, she was anemic. And, you know, there I was used to this energetic mother, Mm -hmm. and she was just, she had just collapsed. Did she ever seem as alive post-war as she did when you were I don't scrambling know. for what, survival? I, was, I would ask the kids what their memories of her were because then I got, you know, she, my I, the thing about my mother, then I, I went and I got my degree and I took the kids cross-country and it seemed to me uh, that my mother was always worried about me, you know, that what I was doing was crazy, what I was doing wasn't going to work out. And I used to say about my mother is my mother thinks I can that that I'm I'm able to do anything that I want and she'll be do her damnness to try to stop me. <laughs> Explain that a little bit. Well, that she had a lot of faith in my abilities and my energy and all that, but it worried her so much that she would rather I didn't do it, whatever it was. And uh and one time I remember saying to her, uh, she was saying, you know, you're just too intelligent and you want to do these things because, because you think you can, but they're really dangerous or you shouldn't be doing them or whatever. It won't work out. And finally I said, you know, if I was retarded, I could be in an institution and everything would be taken care of. She used to make her so mad when I said that, yeah. but that was always my answer. Well, if I was retarded, you could have me institutionalized and then you, I would be totally safe and taken care of and you, know, you wouldn't have to have a thing to worry about. Yeah, and I'm sure that made her happy when you said <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, do you ever experience survivor guilt? Um. You know, I not in, not in that way. You know, I always felt, and maybe this this is maybe just I don't know if that's what you're getting at, that when a person 
if you, there's some example of that I had, I don't remember, but if you um, meet somebody who says, oh, wow, this is terrible, you know, you're about to be, to be killed, I'm going to go with you, you know, and if you're going to die, I'm going to die too. That's not the person I want to be with. I want to be with right. the person who's going to say, I'm going to get you out of here, right. you know. So in a way, I, I, feel, I feel sad that there are people that I wish that were here, that they're not here. But it's like I'm, I'm sad for me, you know, because I'd like to have them here. Right. And I think, gee, if, you know, if my grandparents had lived and and uh, and they really loved me and all my childhood nice memories are with my grandparents and all this, you know, what would they have done that have done for me? But I, in a way, I almost don't understand the term mm-hmm. because I would only feel guilt if I did something wrong. Right. Yeah, I think too. Being a child, you didn't really have anything. To no feel, power to feel yeah. guilty about, other uh-huh. than the fact that you survived and other people didn't, which certainly is nothing to feel guilty about. But for some reason, people that have been through stuff like that or war, you know, soldiers yeah. experience it a yeah. lot, or people that are in air air disasters. I guess what I mean by that example is that I'm I don't feel bad that I didn't join them. I feel bad that they didn't. Which makes or, sense to yeah. me. That seems healthy. But I didn't. But it's not like. You know, I feel badly about my mother that she kind of, I felt when she died and she was fairly, well, I didn't know she was young at the time. Now it seems like she was young. She was like, what, 62, um, that that I felt like she hadn't, you know, she it hadn't happened. She didn't have the good life yet that she should have had at the end. But then... Maybe she did. I bought a I bought uh, a house in New Hampshire with hundred acres of land that I loved, and I uh, in '65, and I used to go and stay there. And my mother couldn't understand that there were city people, and you know, being in the country was like going back in mm-hmm. uh, to something that she got away from, right? Right. And they couldn't imagine living anywhere but New York City because that was like the height of of the good life and uh she came to visit me and she said how can you stay i was there by myself she said how can you stand being here you don't see another house and you know it's no people and it's so lonely and i said look but look i can look out the window and as far as the house in the middle of a hundred acres of land so as far as i can see it's all mine and she said, well, I have the same thing in my apartment. <laughs> and it made me think that she really, you know, was happy with what she had. Yeah. Which to me seemed, you know, yeah. inadequate in some ways. So, yeah. I don't know. I went to visit my parents. Uh, no, we went away on vacation. My husband, my first husband and I... And our two children, which must have been like four and six or something at the time. And my parents came, this my mother been, and my this stepmother. This is in the United States. Okay. And my parents came, I think we were in Saratoga. And they were going to take them to New York and give us, you know, a real vacation. And my stepfather was going to drive. To, and uh, at that time, there were no seat belts and nobody worried about stuff like that but anyway kids were in the back seat and they drove off and I started to get terribly worried 
that something, that there was going to be a car accident. Mm. And meantime, everybody, we were sharing this vacation with another couple, and everybody was all excited, and now the kids were gone, we were going to go to the movies, and we were going to go dancing, and whatever we were going to do. And I went into a thing that was very similar to, my, to the thing with my mother of saying, there's going to be an accident, I'm going to get the news that there was an accident and the kids that were killed. And while everybody was going, and I couldn't go anywhere, I was, I was like paralyzed and I couldn't tell anybody what was going on with me. So I finally said to everybody, look, why don't you just go to the movies? I think I'm coming down with the flu. I'm feeling really sick and I got to go to bed. And I tried to go through my rehearsal of now you get the news and I couldn't do it. Couldn't be done. You know, that was not something I could deal with or wanted to go through. And so I just said, okay, I'm sick, I'm going to bed. And I went to bed until my parents called and said they were home and everybody was fine. Wow. So... It was an interesting experience for me because I had always done this. Actually, my husband at the time used to work in New York once a week, and I used to drive him to the airport. And I would do the same thing when I took him to the airport. I would go home and i say, okay, now you get the phone call, the plane crashed, and he's dead. What do you do? Well, I'll get these documents, and I'll have to tell the kids in this way, and I'll do this or that. And I could do that fine, and it was very assuring for me to know that, you know, I'm going to go through the steps, that's how I'm going to handle it. But when it came to the kid thing, I realized I couldn't handle it, mm. that there was no way I could make myself feel better. Right. And it was, it was good. I liked it because it meant that there were some things that, you know, were not, the Mars survival didn't count more. Right. Than those things. Yeah. So that was just a, it was one of my interesting things. So, so I, would, I would imagine having been through what you've been through, and especially at such an early age, you know, everybody has coping mechanisms for how yeah. they deal with things. And obviously you've just, you've just shared yeah, one with what, us. Yeah, I wanted to show you how it works and then it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Um, what are, what are some other instances where you, you feel like what you went through informed how you dealt with stuff um, later in life, or or didn't deal with things, or is that is that kind of the biggest one that that stands yeah, out to you? Yeah, I don't know. I think that once many years ago, we had a friend who was a psychiatrist and who specialized. I think it was actually. The person I was talking to might have been Robert Lipton, but I'm not sure. Anyway, there's a guy who does a lot of writing about a survival and Holocaust survivors and other survivors. And actually, at that time, I think that's who it must have been because we lived in Cambridge, and somebody asked me to do a bunch of translations of testimonies they have taken from children who had survived concentration camps. And the testimonies were in Polish. Mm. And they asked me to do the translations. And I started doing that, and they were pretty horrible stories. Just real horror stories of these kids. And I, at that point, my children were like in, you know, in school. 
and they could read, and I was terrified of their finding those translations. I didn't want them to read that, so I would, I would type it up during the day, and then I'd hide it. And finally, I told them I didn't want to do this anymore because it, it was too depressing. And uh, sometime at that point, somebody talked to me about, you know, those experiences and stuff, and they said to me, you know, you're living as if you're still in the ghetto. And I was terribly insulted mm-hmm. because, I mean, I was in graduate school, I was teaching, I had two kids, and I had a, you know, house, and I thought I was living really well and had a very happy life. But for some reason, that stuck with me. And every time when I think that I should have uh, done more or did things or did something, and that I still have a sense that what's most important is survival, and that I look at things that I do, as I'm very good at handling crises, and the more threatening they are, the more they energize me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that if I wasn't, if it wasn't for that, I mean, I have a lot of friends who think that I look for crisis situations mm-hmm. so that I can deal with them. And that if I didn't do that, then maybe, you know, there'd be other things I'd be doing that would be more advantageous to me than trying to avoid disaster. So, because whenever somebody says to me, gee, what are you going to do now? I mean, this terrible thing is happening. I have no problem with dealing with that. You know, like, do you feel like you go to kind of an intellectual place in your brain that is kind of uh, logical and there's a reassurance and a soothing quality to that? Or is it just that you you block out the emotion by no, focusing I, on the logic? Well, it's not so much logic. It's just basically... Yeah, I guess it's logic. It's figuring out, okay, what to do, how to get around this, how to solve this problem, and how not to get derailed by worrying about it. You know, it's like when my daughter had what sounded like a very threatening illness, and 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 my sense was, well, you don't focus on how threatening it is, what, what could happen that's bad. You try to figure out how to deal with it so maybe it will turn out okay. Yeah, that sounds perfectly and, healthy to me. That sounds super healthy. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know when, when it's not a, a life and death situation, whether I lose some energy and don't follow through the way I might have if it was more threatening. Really? Yeah, I don't know. Jeff, what do you think? It sometimes just seems too simple to do the the life thing, whereas the crisis is, you know, like okay, here's a, I, I've been put on a mission, and uh, I can take I can problem solve, and my you know I know how to hyper focus on that. And I feel like that's something I've gotten from my mother's genes. <laughs> yeah, my daughter is quite involved too in Holocaust survivors' kids and uh, children of Holocaust survivors, and she feels that a lot of her life has also been circumscribed somewhat by being a child of a Holocaust survivor. And I really, I always felt I tried to protect the kids from all these experiences. When I was teaching, I had a seminar at one point for... What were you teaching? I was teaching sociology Mm -hmm. at Brandeis. And at one point, somehow, I got involved in doing a seminar for children of Holocaust survivors. And this is a thing that I thought was kind of interesting. They either liked their parents very much or didn't. 
And it seemed to me that the parents divided into victims and survivors. Mm-hmm. And that there were the parents who told their kids about all the stories about how clever they were in getting out of situations and how they managed to to survive. And the kids were very fond of those parents. Then there were the other parents who impressed upon the kids how victimized they had been and what terrible things had happened to them. And the kids were not all that sympathetic to those parents. Now, that tended to be a sex difference. That is, the women more tended to be presented themselves as victims. Mm-hmm. And the men, the fathers, more were more likely to present themselves as survivors. But that victim versus survivor uh, situation, it seems like the kids whose parents present themselves as survivors had more of that, what Jeff was talking about, uh, you know, an energy mm-hmm. towards problem solving and yeah. all that. Can you, can you talk about how you, how you free yourself from, from the past, if, if at all? Well, I used to do it very much by avoidance. You know, I never went to movies about the war. I didn't read stuff about the war. I didn't really want to be presented with it. And part of it had to do with, this is another kind of a a seminal event. When I first came to this country, I went to eighth grade in New York City. Some kids started asking, you know, it was 1946, and there were a lot of refugees. And some kids in school started asking me about things, and I started telling them a little bit about uh, some version of, I guess, what I had been through. It was like, and a little girl jumped up and said, don't believe a word she says. My father says, all these refugees, they just come here, they tell you this terrible story, so you feel sorry for them, and, uh, and they lie. Oh, my God. And that shut me right up. And I, at that point, made a decision that when you come out of an insane asylum, you don't tell people that you came out of an insane asylum and you you don't describe what happened in a sane asylum. You pretend that you've always been normal (laughs) and that life has always been normal for you. And that was kind of a defining decision at that point of how I was going to act. But that couldn't have been a healthy choice, could it? I, I mean, well, I suppo- that's what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, I suppose for for a seven or eight year old, um, yeah, it was twelve or right? twelve. Um, oh boy, that's a that's a hard one because you know people need to open up about their pain for it not to. Okay, I had another another. There was another piece to that decision, and that. I only recently realized was, was was not reasonable, but very hopeful. I thought, gee, I'm really so glad they don't believe it. Because if they don't believe it, that means that they can't think it can happen, that things like that happen. They're incapable of making things like that happen. And as they grow older, they will not allow things like that to happen because it's beyond their comprehension. Wow. And I thought that was a very positive thing about the world. Yeah. Wow. It, see, that's one of the things why I wanted to have you on as a, as a, as a guest is because um, until you've lived something like you have, somebody like me can never picture the places that you go to in your brain. And it fascinates me how things like 
worrying about your very survival on a daily basis? What what areas of your soul you're forced to kind of access in your brain? Well, there's one thing that I think a lot of the survivors share and that also always fascinated me because I see it like in fiction and in things. For most people who survive, there's some intuition or a sense that, yes, you know, they're going to make it, that they they almost not don't question. And I thought, for me, it had to do with the fact that I was with my mother all the time. You know, I was not a kid who was off by themselves. So I was with my mother, and she was very clever and very uh, energetic, and there was a sense that whatever happens, she would take care of me. One of the things that uh, uh, Jeff told me about you is that you have done some activism for for peace causes can you talk about that a little bit my activism was more in was more in the women's movement i came out of a of a situation where i felt women were very active very important and uh very important to survival and my expectations of myself but some of it was just european i mean i came here and it seemed the 50s were incredibly backward when it came mm-hmm. to dealing with women yeah so that was kind of a it was a, a kind of a self-assertion so yeah. i really can't i don't know it seems like so much a part of me that, it, that it's very hard to analyze you know what it, it seems inconceivable to have done anything else anything else yeah, yeah. that's why so. that's how i feel about uh, uh rights for gays right now uh-huh. it's like how, how can it's inconceivable to me that anybody would want to deny two people that are in love the ability to live legally that's right. together that's right and, and not only to to be against it is inconceivable to me but to go out of your way with all of the shit you have to do during your day to waste time denying other people happiness is just inconceivable to me yeah and on yeah the whole thing is just it's it's kind of it's a kind of insanity and i wonder at what point you know the only thing that scares me about what's going on now is that i look at it and i say how could they possibly elect any of these idiots and how could they possibly you know have all this uh the arguments for it and saying uh get the government out of our lives but make sure the government doesn't let you <laughs> exactly. get married and all that other stuff but then I think, you know, that must have been going on when Hitler was coming into power. There must have been all these people. Not only that, but he wrote a book, Mein Kampf, and he said exactly what he was going to do. And people just kind of didn't believe it mm-hmm. or thought it was inconceivable or mm-hmm. thought it didn't make sense. And, uh, and there he was, and he got into power. And what really, of course, it's different now, but the other thing that really gets me is that if we had the forms of communication, I've been saying this to Jeff, that we have now, uh, internet, uh, you know, cell phones, photographs on your phone and all that, I don't think the Holocaust could have happened. Yeah. And that to me is, that's the one thing that just gives, gives me chills, that it's that simple. Yeah. Or not simple, but you know, a few years of technology, and I don't think any of that could, would have happened. Yeah. And my grandparents would have been alive, my friends would have been alive, and and, and the world would have been all different because of that You feel like the resistance, resistance could have organized better and, and put up a fight? Well, I think people would have known what was going they on. They would have been more or could, informed. Or couldn't even pretended that they didn't right. know. Yeah. 
you know and and there were there was such an interwoven society in terms of who got you know done in and everything that i don't think it this could have i don't think it could have yeah. happened on that scale yeah this is a quote from marshall McLuhan, i guess saying that any act of violence is an attempt to define your identity. Mm -hmm. And I just, that really struck me yeah. as very powerful. Yeah, and to protect your ego, because ultimately the violence is, is almost always born born out of, out of ego. You know, you're, you're, but the, the the guy who attacks somebody a gay in the bar is trying to prove to everybody that he's, he's not gay. Exactly. So that it's always kind of has to do with your identity by saying I'm not them. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not this. Yes. I'm not this. I'm either that. trying to be something or not be some, be something. And yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Well, uh, Christine, I want to thank you so much. Uh, okay. is, is there anything that, be, be, as we wrap up, that you'd like to say to somebody out there? Who's who's stuck? Who's struggling? Who feels stuck in their head, or hopeless, um, and and doesn't know what to well, do? Well, you know, I, I guess it boils. It's very simple, but like what I was saying before about the energy for life, that I feel often when I see people like that, and I'm saying, "Hey, don't you realize that you're alive, and that you have, you can do things." And that they're, they're all, you know, millions of people who had, they had nothing but just life, you know, they could have done things, they would have been happy, that's all they wanted. Mm -hmm. And you have that, and yet because you have a life but, you know, X or Y happen, or you don't have this, or you don't have that, is that enough to just completely fold up, right. you know, so, but... I don't know what would give you that sense of the value of just of just being alive and being here yeah. and and being able to you know look out or relate to people or do whatever. That that to me is one of the most mysterious things about life is is where does that come from and it and is that just a gift from the universe is that mm -hmm. something we can cultivate? I I don't I don't know the answer uh to that but um I know when we have those moments, when we feel it inside ourselves, that that is something to be grateful about and to and to not take for granted. You know, so as long as you have that spark of life in you, mm -hmm. you should be okay. Yeah, uh, I want to I want to thank you so much for uh, for opening up and uh, talking about stuff that I I know some of it was not easy. Uh, to to go back and to think about or or, or talk about, but uh, I I appreciate it, and I know my listeners appreciate it, and um, and I want to thank you for raising a uh, a great son who's been a, <laughs> a, a good friend to me yeah, and somebody who really has great beautiful energy about him, and uh, you know that you that know, again I don't know how much credit I can take for it, but I love him too. He's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, Christine. Many thanks to Christine Keys and uh, and Jeff Rosenthal and all you guys for uh, for listening and uh, all the people that helped make this show possible. You can support it non-financially by going to iTunes and giving us a good uh, rating. Um, enough out of me. Uh, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just remember there is hope. Do not give up. You are not alone. Thanks for listening.
can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car right in your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.